Welcome to Beyond the Entertainment, where we take a look at the lives of those who entertain us. I'm talking about the tragedies, scandals, and crimes committed by them or to them. No one is off limits. We're going to talk about everyone from sports entertainers, Hollywood, YouTubers, and everyone in between. Everyone has a story to tell, and I'm here to tell you theirs. It's Stephanie, and I'm back to tell you some more about Marvin Gaye. Sorry about the delay. I just needed a little time to add some more to the story. I wanted to be able to wrap it up into three parts kind of neatly. I'm also experiencing a little bit of eye fatigue looking at screens lately, so I've been requiring a lot more frequent breaks just so that my eyesight doesn't get blurry. Pretty sure I need to get to an eye doctor, as I suspect I need a new prescription. So the last episode was mostly about his childhood and the trauma that he faced then. His father raised him and his siblings within a strict religious home early in his childhood that definitely created a conflicting dynamic within his psyche of who he was and what he was told he should be. Marvin had a passion for music that was evident and not only a singing ability, but the fact that he could learn to play an instrument by ear. He struggled pretty early in his career, which is very common when you're trying to make a name for yourself. Music was changing from doo-wop to Motown, so he was able to work on creating his sound within this change that would eventually get him to a hit song. He had also recently gotten married to Anna, who had been there to encourage him to do that and not give up. So let's get back into it. We're in 1963, and little Stevie Wonder is blowing up. Marvin has another hit with Can I Get a Witness, and the civil rights movement is starting to take off. The gospel sound in Motown is taking off as well because the artists writing the music and performing them are singing from the heart. It's starting to reach more people, including young white people who are getting behind the movement and rejecting their parents' views. Barry Gordy is seeing the increasing success, but he is running his stars to the bone. Marvin recalled working 18-hour days from recording, writing, and training on performances. He said he was being pushed as far as a human could be pushed, expressing that some of them probably needed a break just for their mental health, but Barry just couldn't understand that. It's such a sad thing to read as I've been there. I have times where I'm exhausted and it's just that I need a break. I need to allow my body and my mind to rest. Marvin was already predispositioned to mental health issues just from his upbringing, but the fact that he's being pushed that much as a performer is pretty troubling. It definitely reminds me of the K-pop story I did, but I don't want to sidetrack from this one too much. So one night, an exhausted Marvin would refuse to perform, which caused Barry to hit him in the mouth and scream at him. It was described as a verbal reprimand that the disc jockey he was witness to had never seen anyone be so aggressively reprimanded like that before. As he did with his father, Marvin would take the reprimand and then go on to perform, even though he had initially refused because he was just too anxious. That was probably amplified by the fact that he was exhausted. However, by the taping of Marvin Gaye live on stage at the end of the year, his performance had improved so much it was like there was a different man on stage. The beginning of 1964 was going really well for Marvin. The song for his wife Anna, You're a Wonderful One, hit the charts on February. 
It was about a woman who gave her man courage, lifted his spirit, and kept pushing him ahead, which is exactly what she did for Marvin. The song My Guy by Mary Wells took off as well, which benefited him because they had recently made an album of duets called Together. There was speculation that they perhaps were together, and the popularity that rose from female fans due to the duets was pretty intense. Marvin would say it wasn't good for his marriage, as Anna was the jealous type. However, it also could have been the sweaty handkerchief that he threw at the ladies that could have been upsetting her. It would backfire as on one occasion, a lady would charge him on stage. As much as he liked the attention, he didn't much care for being groped on stage. That's pretty understandable. No one should ever feel like they have the rights to your body without your permission, especially just because you're famous. In 1964 is also when the Beatles came to America, which gave Barry an idea. He needed to get Motown to England, and who other should you send over but Marvin? He would impress them with his ability to analyze music, which is no surprise, considering that he plays instruments by ear. He talked on interviews about what he thought the trends were and his interests in music marketing. He fell in love with England during his time there, and he vowed that one day he would move there to live. He had immediately gotten along with the people he met, and he loved listening to them talk. I think that's something that we probably all have in common. I imagine there is at least one accent that you could listen to all day. By the end of 1964, How Sweet It Is would be a hit on both sides of the Atlantic. In 1965, the Supremes were making hit after hit in the U.S. and in England. The Four Tops and The Temptations were gaining steam as well. The Temptations and The Four Tops would inspire Marvin to develop his voice more, creating a growl and working on a more powerful manly voice. Smokey Robinson had written two number one songs for him, I'll Be Doggone and Ain't That Peculiar. He would release two albums that year titled How Sweet It Is To Be Loved By You and a tribute to the great Nat King Cole. Tragedy would hit as his sister-in-law, Lucy Gordy Wakefield, would pass on July 29, 1965, and of course he would sing at her funeral. He would record the song His Eyes on the Sparrow, where he cried throughout, and that would be put on a tribute album for Lucy called In Loving Memory, with tributes by other various Motown artists. He was also greatly affected by the death of Malcolm X that year. He loved the strength and truth-telling just as much as he loved Dr. King's idealism and courage. These people were beacons for change that were painful for him and his community when their lives were taken far too early. There would be some light at the end of the year for Marvin and Anna when they would adopt their son in November. They chose to name him Marvin Pence Gay III. Marvin was conflicted on his desire to separate from his father and the need for tradition, and obviously tradition would win out. Anna was unable to conceive, so they decided to adopt as they both loved children. Their marriage was getting a little rocky, so they looked at this as an opportunity to bring them back together. Although Marvin was still on the rise in his career, which meant that he wouldn't be as present for his son in those early years as he would have liked. In 1966, he would do a run at the Copacabana. However, his first performance was slighted by his infant son. He would make an appearance for the audience, and let's be honest, you can't help but get upstaged by a baby. This attention-stealing moment, as well as the attention the baby would receive from his wife, made him understand a little how his father must have felt. He was a little jealous of his son, as all eyes were no longer just on Marvin, but with the child as well. They had reached a point where they were getting into physical fights and screaming matches that could break out at home or wherever they may be in public. There wasn't a place off limits to the couple where they couldn't fight. Anna's jealousy was only increased by his duet album with Kim Weston that year. 
He felt they had lost the pure love they once held, but he could remember what it felt like when he sang his duets. An interesting thing about their tumultuous relationship was when Marvin showed up at a motel to knock on a door to a random room that he had somehow developed a sixth sense would be where he would find his wife and her lover. He mentioned he enjoyed the idea of catching her, that he couldn't satisfy her, but only the other man could, and that all he could do was watch. He would team up with another woman for a duet album in 1964 named Tammy Terrell. She was intriguing to Marvin because she was the kind of woman who couldn't be controlled by anyone. He was interested in her, not in a sexual way, but admired her for the person that she was. Her soprano voice meshed really well with his tenor, which is on full display in their hit song, Ain't No Mountain High Enough. They were performing that year when Tammy would collapse on stage. Marvin caught her in his arms and carried her off stage. They never knew what really was going on, but there was a rumor that she had a brain tumor or that she had brain damage from an abusive ex-boyfriend. They would make three albums in total before she would suddenly pass in 1970. However, after the collapse, Marvin would refuse to sing in public. He had already flew out for a performance once and flew back home as soon as he landed. He was so anxious that he just couldn't do shows, and her collapse seemed to enhance his fears. On the other hand, Barry Gordy was thriving from his performer's success and would upgrade to a mansion in 1967, giving his old home to Marvin and Anna. It was a nice place, an upgrade from his current home, but it felt much like he was living in the shadow of Barry. Barry was making and taking all of the money, which was becoming an issue for those who worked for him. Some of his talent and writers who made some of the biggest hits were beginning to quit. They felt like he was being greedy instead of sharing his wealth and profits with the people who actually made it for him. But Marvin was loyal to Barry, even though he was feeling like he deserved a bigger piece of the pie. He wanted to be wealthy, even when preaching that all he needed was God's love to be happy. Instead, he was using drugs like marijuana and cocaine while him and his wife continued to cheat on each other. He wasn't going to deny himself of the pleasures in life while he internally fought to stay connected to God and his religious upbringings. It was in this time period where he had become openly suicidal. The thoughts were no longer just thoughts. He was in an apartment. I didn't find out whose it was. It was never mentioned. But he had a gun threatening to kill himself and anyone who tried to stop him. It would be his father-in-law, Pops Gordy, who would be able to talk him down, saving his life that time. It unfortunately would be the first of many times something like this would happen. He never did end up pulling the trigger himself, but it did become very obvious that he was not a very happy man. His music would then start to change to make a shift away from his love songs to display his inner pain and anguish. The end of the 60s saw a spike in hits for Marvin that he had yet to achieve. Even though his songs were written by other people, they reflected what he was feeling and going through. He was most inspired to sing when presented with music that he could relate to. It put an emotional depth into his music that was obvious to those who listened. Marvin's version of Heard It Through the Grapevine was actually recorded before Gladys Knight's version that was released in 1967. When his release in 1968, it skyrocketed to the top of the charts and was number one across the billboards. It was the first time he achieved this success. Part of this success was due to Norman Whitfield. They would become close to fighting on more than one occasion, but together they made beautiful music. The album MPG, which released in 1969, were songs that seemed to mirror the collapse of Marvin's marriage, but came from the mind of Norman. It was like he was creating songs with things Marvin was thinking and wanted to say. They would make one other album together called That's The Way Love Is. He closed out the 60s with chart-topping music, but still refusing to do shows. 
He only performed for the money, and with his music on the charts, he didn't really need to do it. Marvin began shifting his interest during his performance hiatus. He had began writing and producing the originals. He didn't want to sing love songs, but the group reminded him of the Moonglows, bringing him back to his start. They could sing the love songs he was able to write, but didn't have the heart to perform. He enjoyed writing for the four voices, but also he hadn't had much of an opportunity to write and express himself like he used to. He even was able to find some peace with Anna amongst the turmoil when they would be able to come together to write. It wasn't just producing that he was working on either. He was really getting into sports. He had befriended a few professional athletes and in his lowest points, when he wouldn't be leaving his room for days, they could actually get him to come outside and play ball. He would become consumed with the idea that he could play professionally and even trained with the Detroit Lions as he was friends with two of their players. They told him they couldn't let him join the team because they were afraid that something would happen to him and ruin his singing career. The members of the team he was friends with also said that even though he was a really good player, that other people have been playing since junior high and you can't just train six months and join the team. However, he was very talented athletically as he was with his music. Sports was a healthy way to pull him out of his depressive state. It also got him to quit smoking cigarettes and drugs while his focus was on training. Marvin and his sister-in-law would actually become part owners of the World Football League team, the Detroit Wheels. At the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, Marvin was pretty disgusted with the state of the world. There were shootings, riots, and war, which contributed to his turnoff to romance. His brother had served in Vietnam, and his stories upon his return made Marvin's blood boil. The men who fought for change were assassinated, and the biggest question was, what's going on? He saw the people who attended Woodstock were traveling a new path. He read a book called The Teachings of Don Juan, which sparked his journey to a new path as well. He wanted to break from the Motown corporate view of working and pave his own way. He took time to reflect on his feelings, gather his emotions in a productive way, and began to work on his album, What's Going On. This time, his music wasn't about love or the main women in his life, but of his brother's experiences in war mixed with a reflection of his own life. It wouldn't be released until 1971 because the higher-ups felt people wouldn't respond and that the songs were too long. Eventually, he gave them an ultimatum to release it or he would never record for them again. This was his first self-produced, self-written album, and it would skyrocket to the top of the charts upon release. This album won him numerous awards, which caused a little inner conflict as Marvin wanted the recognition for his work, but he still was feeling very reclusive. He would make appearances to receive the NAACP 5th Annual Image Award, Cashbox's Vocalist of the Year Award, and the Billboard's Trendsetter Award. However, after Tammy's collapse in 1967 and her death in 1970, he just still wasn't up to perform. He was incredibly anxious. He wanted to please his fans' ears, but getting in front of the screaming women who he seemed to love and resent at the same time was still too much. His fans would only get glimpses of him in press interviews until May 1st of 1972, when the district he grew up in declared it would be Marvin Gaye Day. They were going to hold an honor ceremony at his former high school. There would be a motorcade, congressional reception, and a benefit concert at the Kennedy Center. And of course, they wanted Marvin to perform, but he would go back and forth until they got his mother involved. If anyone could get him to come out to perform, it was her. He went on stage that day terrified, but was described as relaxed and charming throughout the entire event. Marvin's entire family was there to celebrate with him. That day, Marvin felt like he had finally made his father proud, even if it was just for that day. 
Marvin would move on to the calls of Hollywood after an unsuccessful release of the song You're the Man. He was doubting himself after it failed to cross over from the soul charts. He was tasked with writing the scores for the movie Troubled Man. He would put his piano skills out on display in the jazz instrumental album for the film. He had submerged himself in the dark mood of the movie, which was a stark contrast to his most recent album. It was much like the ever-changing moods and depths of his own personality. The only vocal song titled Trouble Man became a hit on both pop and soul charts, making it a staple in his repertoire. He would finish off 1972 performing a few songs for the Operation Push Benefit concert that had been arranged by his friend, Reverend Jesse Jackson. In 1973, Marvin would move himself and his family to LA where Barry Gordy had been for some time already. He was afraid of going out there even though he had an apartment because he had been going back and forth while he was writing the scores for the movie. So he bought his parents a home to move them out there along with his siblings, nieces, and nephews. He would be able to witness Barry's daughter Hazel marry Jermaine Jackson from the Jackson 5, which bothered him as he felt Barry wanted to replace him with Jermaine. The paranoia was all in Marvin's head, as Barry and Jermaine felt he was the greatest Motown artist. Jermaine thought of Marvin as his idol. Both men loved him, but only Marvin was unable to see it. Diana Ross had also broken out into Hollywood, but this caused her music career to suffer a little, and Barry wanted to team Marvin and Diana up for a 60s-style duet album. Marvin had sworn off duets since Tammy's death, but he decided he would give it a shot. It would be a failure, because they musically just didn't have any chemistry together. It once again made him worry he couldn't pull off another hit like he had with what's going on, so he retreated back into seclusion, refusing to do performances while he would decide how to proceed musically. He had also been arrested on Sunset Strip for possession of pot, but was saved by Motown lawyers. His drug use clouded his mind and probably perpetuated his bouts of grandeur, as he was convinced Diana loved him from the lyrics she recorded and that he too could be a Hollywood star, but just didn't want a kowtow to the people necessary. Things would suddenly change once his future second wife, then just 16 years old, walked into the Motown studios while he was recording Let's Get It On. Let's Get It On was the record and song he needed to prove to the Motown execs that the wait for the next album was worth it. This album represented the conflict within between sex, love, and religion. It was a huge success for Marvin, and he would make millions off the sales of this album. He entered the studio often with no lyrics and just mumbled things until they became a song. It was proof that he was a natural talent and his best music came when he looked within his soul. The turmoil of his failed marriage, his views on sex, and his new love of Janice Hunter created his best album yet. The first part was mostly dedicated to the merging of love and sex, while the second part was separation and sexual frustration. A fusion of his new desires and love for Janice blended into the heartache and pain of giving up Anna. However, the success that this launched him to meant people wanted to see him perform, one of his greatest fears surrounding his fame. Marvin didn't like performing, but his obsession with Janice made him want to spend his time with just her shutting out the rest of the world. Marvin and Jan, as he called her, were living in a mountaintop home outside of Los Angeles. He was hiding away from his fans, from the pressure, and in a way hiding her from the public eye. Marvin knew he needed to come down from the mountain eventually and would make an attempt to do that in November of 1973, but was unable to calm his nerves and he canceled. By January 4th of 1974, he was able to gather the nerve to perform at the Oakland Coliseum, only giving the go-ahead just a week before the show was to happen. He had to plan out everything, 
including how and when he would dance so nothing would be a surprise. He was so afraid of silence that he didn't want a single pause between the songs. He thought the audience wasn't going to applaud him. At first, his voice was a little rusty, but he would eventually reach inside to find the strength from his religion to overcome his fear a few songs in. He only performed his original music and would only perform his original music from that show forward. He didn't want to give a shout out to other people, and I think it helped build his confidence having his fans cheer at the songs that he worked so hard on. In 1973, Janet got pregnant. Unfortunately, she suffered a miscarriage, but by early 1974, she was pregnant again. He was so excited to start a family, but Anna was still his wife, and they still had a son. He was hesitant to do more performances because the more money he made, the more money Anna could get from him in the divorce. He still needed to provide for himself and the budding family that he was creating. His mountaintop sanctuary was slowly becoming a stressor. As someone had slit his dog's throats, a storm blew off the second floor balcony, and with the threats of wildfires, it could take just one spark to lose everything. So he would go on tour in 1974 with 20 dates and 20 cities to fund a move and prepare for the addition to his family. He would require a large entourage to go with him, including his mother. He felt if his mother didn't go with him that he would never have had the nerve to go on tour. He also had backup dancers and a large orchestra to take some of the pressure off of him when he performed. While on tour, Jan would give birth to their daughter named Nona Aisha that would be nicknamed Pi. After her birth in September, it was hard for him to go back to finish his tour dates, but the lawsuits would have put him in incredible debt if he didn't finish. He was enamored by the new tiny life that he had helped create. He was also self-medicating with drugs to get through the tour, which he could feel taking a toll on him physically. He wanted to go back to a place of peace with his new child. In an article in November that was released by Ebony, Marvin finally mentioned Jan, and there was even a picture of her at a family reunion. He was even somewhat vulnerable, talking about his insecurities and ironically saying that he never felt safe anywhere but his parents' home. By the end of the year, he would move his family to a large apartment closer to civilization and hopefully away from some of the dangers he faced on the mountain. Unfortunately, he wasn't going to get his peace just yet, because early 1975, Anna would file for divorce. Divorce can be very nasty, and it only fueled Marvin's paranoia that Barry was going to go against him. Meanwhile, Barry was strictly keeping himself out of the divorce. Jan also became pregnant again in early 1975, even though at this point they were already experiencing issues. They would go from the apartment to a new home that would be big enough to accommodate their growing family, started collecting cars, and built himself a recording studio like the impending divorce proceedings weren't even a blip on his radar. The location of the studio was on a road that was populated by prostitutes. He thought it was exciting. He had a fascination and weakness for prostitutes because they didn't judge him for his sexual desires. He beat himself up enough with the shame he carried like any sexual act or any sexual song he wrote was from his evil side, whispered into his ear by the devil himself. He hated it all as he felt it took him away from God, but he also couldn't stop himself from living the truth of who he was inside. Marvin had developed a friendship with an older woman that he respected for her willingness to be straightforward and scold him when she felt necessary. He had made an implication once of wanting to cross the friend boundary, but she would tactfully shut it down. Her name was Jewel Price. She became his confidant, someone he could be himself with, and he put her on a pedestal treating her like a queen in return. He would often tell her about his issues with Jan, like how Jan wanted to sing, but Marvin still thought that a woman should serve him and his fantasies, not her own. Part of his fantasy was for her to betray him, 
much like Anna did. He wanted her to stray, admitting he begged her and then would eventually make her do it in a conversation that he had with Miss Price. He was filled with heartache and turmoil in this time of his life, and he expressed that in his album, I Want You. Leon Ware had written a lot of the music before Marvin had seen any of it, but they were songs that resonated with how he was feeling at the time. Leon thought that they could complete the album in just a few weeks, but he didn't know that Marvin would take 13 months because he just couldn't tell his inner child no. When he was ready to stop for the day, that was it. But the time it took had paid off as his fans loved the album, despite some bad reviews from the critics. His songs depicted the women of his dreams, the bliss he wanted with Jan, a marriage proposal, his sexual desires, and the love that he had for his children. It was a blend of love, romance, and desire that he thought was his best work. 1976 proved to be a year of chaos for Marvin, as he was technically on the run. He was facing jail time for contempt in the divorce and child support hearings with his soon-to-be ex-wife, Anna. He decided that now was the perfect time to go to London and do a tour. Now, his typical fears were on display, enhanced by the idea of flying, causing him to almost cancel the shows, but with the encouragement of his manager and his sister Ziola by his side, he would go. He recorded a two-LP set live at the London Palladium, which shows how his performance had changed since the last tour. He had switched up his attire, but more than that, dialed up the sex appeal. He would refer to the audience's baby, take off his coat and tie while singing Let's Get It On, and tell them, I'm going to work hard for you, baby. He, of course, was still throwing his sweaty handkerchief out at the audience. Marvin found the act degrading, yet thrilling, which seems to be the theme of the constant battle with his actions and thoughts. He would finally finish the divorce process with Anna in March of 1977. She wanted him to pay her a million dollars, but he didn't have that just laying around. He had made millions of dollars, but with bad investments, the large amount of drugs he was doing, and opulent spending, he didn't really have much to spare. So they came up with an agreement where he would pay her $600,000 instead. He would pay her $305,000 from the advance of his next record and $295,000 from the profits. He at first was going to quickly do his record, not really caring how it came out since she was going to be getting the money anyway. But once he began working on it, he felt his fans deserved better from him and would use the album as a way to express himself as he had in the past. The album Here My Dear was essentially about their relationship and the divorce. In the song I Met a Little Girl, he described his gratitude for meeting Anna, recited their wedding vows, and then expressed freedom from the woman he had once declared his savior. He had accused her of withholding their son from him, discussed their sex life, his drug use, affairs with prostitutes, and capped it off with a love song for Jan. He would air out all their dirty laundry for the world. It didn't really help him feel better, though. He was the epitome of the suffering artist. As a result, Anna threatened to sue him for $5 million on the grounds that this record was an invasion of privacy. Marvin's view was all's fair in love and war. After his divorce from Anna, Marvin and Jan would get married. Marvin was pretty conflicted with this, as he loved Jan, but he felt he had trapped himself again. He had faced a legal battle that caused him to pay out $196,800 to four of his musicians who claimed he hadn't paid them in over a year. In 1978, his revenge album to Anna had released, but it wouldn't produce a hit song. Marvin recorded another album of ballads that he had written over a decade previously, but very refused to release it. He probably could have used the money had the album released and been profitable because he was in trouble financially. He had two bankruptcy hearings in October just after signing a seven-year contract with Barry Gordy's company, offering $600,000 for the next two albums 
and $1 million for the ones that followed. Marvin related his spending habits to his drug habits. He could lay off for a couple days or maybe a week before he would go back to his routine again. Marvin did what he found was easiest when he needed money, and that was go on tour. In November, he would collapse on stage in Tennessee, resulting in a hospital stay that lasted a few days. To cap off his year after threatening a few times already, Jan would file for divorce. The brief marriage he knew he shouldn't have entered was already coming to an end. I think we'll leave this story here for now and continue next time to finish the last decade of Marvin Gaye's life. It seems that as his success grew, his troubles within grew with it. He had an incredible ability to time a change in style or album release at the right moment once he stopped working as a machine, pumping out two albums a year. He would finally dissolve his marriage just to enter another that he knew wouldn't work out. However, he had finally become the successful musician that he had always longed to be. I would love to spend some time discussing my thoughts on parts of his life I covered today, but I'm going to save my thoughts for the end of part three. He has such a fascinating dichotomy within himself. As always, if you have any suggestions for future stories or want to share a story with me, you can send it to beyondtheentertainmentpod at gmail.com. Give me a follow on Instagram at staylor underscore BTE, or you can find me on Twitter at BTE underscore pod. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support it, you can do that at anchor.fm slash beyondtheentertainmentpod slash support. You can make a monthly donation of as little as 99 cents, which can help me with costs related to research and recording equipment. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Beyond the Entertainment.